Welcome to Horses for Future. Horse people can make a difference in the climate change crisis, and together we're learning how. My name is Alexandra Curland. I'm the author of The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step -step guide in pictures, and many other books and DVDs on clicker training. And when I'm not writing about clicker training horses, I'm very much focused on the climate change crisis and other concerns that affect the environment. And right now, we are in the midst of the coronavirus shutdown. I live in upstate New York, so we have been on pause since March, and life has definitely changed this spring for all of us. And one of the things that became really clear as the spring progressed was that this was probably a good year to put in a vegetable garden. There are lots of good reasons for putting in a vegetable garden. One is you get wonderful vegetables and I'm a vegetarian, so what could be nicer? And, and shopping local is definitely good for the planet. And also this year, who knows what's going to happen. It looks as though we're beginning to have a positive effect in terms of bringing the curve down for the coronavirus, but we don't know yet how it's going to affect the food chain. So this is really a good time to put in a vegetable garden. It's a good time to think about planting more than you need so you have veggies to share. And all of that has, has led me to connect with a good friend of mine and a client through the clicker training, Suzanne Koenig. And I wanted, Suzanne, uh, I wanted to talk to you in particular because I've been in your garden, so I know what a great gardener you are. I know that you know how to produce vegetables. And you're also, in one, one of the many hats that you wear, in addition to being a dog trainer, a professional dog trainer, uh, one of the many hats that you wear is you were a chef. And I think that makes a difference in terms of talking about, well, let's grow some veggies because it broadens things out beyond, well, let's just grow some tomatoes and cucumbers. So I want to talk to you today, not just from the perspective of how do I prepare my garden? What do I want to plant in my garden? But also in planning ahead, what am I going, what kinds of feasts am I preparing my garden for? Because I think that's an important perspective to bring to all of this. So welcome. It's great to be here and, um, and to speak on a topic that is dear to my heart. And really, I would say, and as I've said for years, um, it, it's what charges my battery. Gardening is far more than just putting food on my table and enjoying the, the beautiful flowers, but it really does feed my my soul and my spirit. So it's a healing experience for me. What is it about gardening? What does gardening do for you? Well, for one thing, and not to sound cliche, but it's a very grounding experience. Um, I don't think there's anything more grounding than sticking your hands in the soil. Um, <laughs> and you are with you are one with the earth for that period of time. It's also a very nurturing experience and it is one of hope. I always think of 
gardeners as being extremely hopeful because every time you plant a seed or you know sink some roots in the soil your expectation is that you're going to nurture that plant and bring it to fruition or to beauty or whatever its intended use is and so you're very hopeful so sometimes when i'm in my greatest head full of despair uh, gardening can pull me right out of that i think we're we're good visualizers so we're we're optimistic visualizers so i've been a gardener all my life i just haven't been a vegetable gardener that at the house we don't don't have a lot of really great sunny places and the places that really are great and sunny I want to plant flowers so somehow the veggies always get pushed out for the flowers so I have I've I have a garden I always think of it as sort of somewhat more along the English style country garden lots of flowers or at least that's what I have in my mind it's not really what I've ever achieved here in in, in this climate but when you plant something there's this you're visualizing what it's going to look like how it's going to fit in what this garden is going to look like in uh, another couple of months and another because I'm planting perennials in another couple of years so I think we're we practice optimistic visualization, which is a really great thing to have in this day and age when, oh, you could really just sink into the depths of despair when you listen to the news. Indeed. Oh. And optimism is a really good way to, to put it. I think that when we, you know, and it's interesting to hear you say that, you, you know, you never get the vegetables in because you've taken up all the space with flowers. And I'm quite the opposite. I, I never get my flowers in because I'm filling everything with something edible. One of the things that keeps me going, I should give a little bit of history about my gardening history is, you know, I grew up on a small farm, lots of kids. And one of the things that we did was grow a lot of our own food. And so I kind of grew up with that as this is what you do. When I was in my mid-20s, I really took off growing food for myself and for a houseful of other young adults. And I haven't stopped. Um, I've probably grown in probably six different states and six different ecosystems, but I've always wanted to have a beautiful flower garden and the English cottage garden is my dream garden. Yes. But in all the different environments that I've lived, this, this is not necessarily a possibility. So I've had to learn to adjust to the ecosystem that I live in and the microclimate that my particular garden is in and learn how to produce the food that I want or the food that I can grow, but also those beautiful flowers. And I think, I, you know, one of, one of the newest things that I've uh, undertaken this year is I have transferred about 50% of my garden space to flowers. Wow. Yeah. So yesterday I probably planted over 100 flower starts that I started in my greenhouse. Um, and that's just yesterday. Uh, that was like from four to six. And I'm looking at that and I'm going, holy cow, that is a lot of garden space. 
that could be food. But but the driving the driver behind this change in my gardening practice is I started a farm stand last year, and um, just a little neighborhood farm stand, and it's something that I have always wanted to do. And one of the reasons is because I always produce far more food than this family could ever eat, even though I do cook my dog's own food and my dog's food, and I also use the vegetables from the garden for that. We still have an abundance. So I'm always giving it away to whoever my clients are or friends or neighbors or whatever. But uh, last year I decided, hey, you know what? I'm just going to set up a stand outside my gate here. And I called it the Feed Thy Neighbor Farm Stand. And basically it was pay what you want, don't pay at all, enjoy these, take what you need, share them with others. And I have to tell you, that thing took off. And I have, and I saved every single one of them, about 75 letters of gratitude and appreciation from my neighbors. Wow. It's opened up a whole new community for me because people come by, they want to talk to me, they want to talk about this, they want to talk about that. But one of the biggest most popular things out there were the bouquets. And so I have great stories of people coming by on their anniversary, guys coming home and they forgot to do their, you know, they forgot the anniversary, you know, all of that. Or or people forgot their girlfriend's birthday or whatever. But uh, so the flowers were a really big hit. So I thought, okay, well, people really love the flowers. I'm going to grow more flowers. I had a short conversation with a girlfriend of mine who owns a dahlia farm. And we were talking about this, you know, because we were talking about the difference between produce, something that feeds your body, and flowers that feed your soul. And we, we both kind of have had the same experience, that people need that beauty and that, I don't know exactly how to explain it, but it does, it feeds your soul, just like the produce feeds your body. And I think that's a really nice balance. So... So here I go into this new venture of growing a lot of flowers this year. So what did you plant? Well, let's see. I've planted um, several different varieties of snapdragons. Oh, I love snapdragons. Yeah, I probably have about 300 dahlia plants, about, let's see, probably eight different kinds of sunflowers. So one of the things I'm looking for are uh, flowers that, so a bouquet kind of has multiple components to it. So you have to have filler and green and different textures, yep. you know, and large, really showy things. So I've planted status and cosmos, zinnias, uh, lace flower, which is a good filler, uh, honeywort, which is an absolute fantastic flower that just blows my mind, uh, bachelor buttons, calendula, different types of sage, uh, bells of Ireland. Larkspur, Queen Anne's Lace, uh, the list goes on and on, quite frankly. I've also grown some pretty interesting things like hyacinth bean and grasses that will, when they seed out, are going to be really nice. Other things that you can add to flower bouquets that people really enjoy are things like purple basil, oregano flowers are gorgeous. I've planted some yellow and blue snap peas. I'm very curious about that, that you add to bouquets or you can eat them. But yeah, I've probably planted, I've, I've started most everything in the greenhouse this year, which is another big experiment. And I probably have about 150 different varieties between the vegetables and the flowers. 
Well, that certainly puts my little effort <laughs> in perspective, but my goodness. Now we should say where you are. So you are, uh, your garden is in Washington state. So we're on opposite sides of the country. Well, probably about the same longitude though, I would guess. Yes, different climate. So. Different climate. I'm in the Pacific Northwest or the uh, Olympic Peninsula. Our uh, growing zone here is about seven, but really more like six where I am because it's a little bit colder out where I am. We've got the Olympic Mountains that rise right up out our backyard. And that gives us this very special little microclimate here, which is called the blue zone or the rain shadow. And as most people relate to Seattle and the Pacific Northwest as being a very rainy, overcast place, which truly can happen, we live within this radius of this rain shadow where the Olympic Mountains, which are pretty high, about eight to 9,000, stop the rain. And so we actually have a more of a temperate climate with much less rain than our, the surrounding area. So we get more days of sunshine and less rain. It does mean we have to water, but we have a lot of that. Yes. Um, but I did live in Vermont for several years. And so I am a little bit familiar with your climate to a certain extent. Yes. And the challenges that arise there. And every, every climate that I've ever lived in has its own challenges and its own pluses for sure. And that's the beauty of gardening is, is for me is that experimentation and that learning about what's going to go where, what's going to do best here. And, you know, there's always a learning curve in any new garden you start. It's a lot like the training, isn't it? In good training, you really learn to listen and respond to the individual that you're working with. And in gardening, you have to really listen to the land and be willing to respond to what it's going to offer you. Indeed. I make that analogy all the time um, when I'm in my garden because it is so true. And a lot of times in our training as well as in our gardening, we try to force things that just aren't, yes. aren't there or aren't there yet. Yes. And you never, it, it always backfires. It's never, it's never a smooth transition. You never get that, that beautiful gait or that, you know, that lovely behavior. Just like you don't get that incredibly rich fertile soil that's growing this incredible plant that can resist disease and insect infestation which is really what I'm looking for really looking to create that microclimate that microenvironment for those plants that are so healthy that I don't have to worry about the pests and a little, if I forget to water is that plant going to be able to handle that little bit of stress that, that's what I'm looking for. And you can see it. And I think when you really care for your land and your garden, you really can see the difference. You yes. not only can you see it visually, yes. but you can really feel it. There's an yes. energy that's going yes. on in that garden that is alive with health. So that's, that's my goal when I garden is, you know, how can I reach that? Because if I have to bring in tons of fertilizer and spray things with pesticides and all the rest of it, I'm not interested. You know, I can go to the grocery store and get produce that's been sprayed with all sorts of chemicals. That's not what I want. I want to grow produce that is just thriving with good health and is healthy to eat. Otherwise, why bother? Right. 
And that's a big part of why I why I grow food back in when I started growing as a young adult. When I was a kid, I didn't really think too much of it. I just did whatever we were supposed to do. I wake up every Saturday morning to, I used, I used to joke about it, to a chore list that was as long as I was tall. And that, that is no joke. But as I became a young adult and was a little bit more conscientious of my health and eating right and all of that, I really wanted to grow food that was going to nourish my body and the body of the people that I care about. And what I've found is that the most of the produce, the, the commercially produced produce, is grown on land that is so devastated from over agricultural use and that almost everything is grown with synthetic fertilizer, unless it's organic, of course, that lacks, it may look beautiful, but it lacks a lot of the nutrients that we think we're getting. And so that's one of the real benefits of, you know, organically producing your own food is that you get these incredibly rich, nutrient-rich foods that we were designed to eat that really do create health. So your soil, the health of your soil is absolutely paramount. Yes. So that, I guess that brings us to practical questions. So I'm building this garden literally from the ground up. So we've taken over the lower barn on the property and it, the, this barn has a barnyard that was, uh, to which stone dust was added. So rather than having the original clay soil, a very, very thick layer of stone dust was put down. So I'm building this garden on a stone dust base, which is different from anything that I've ever done before. But we had at the upper barn where my horses live, in the winter, we, for manure disposal, when the snow just gets too deep for the normal places that we take the manure, there's a side hill that I have been using for the winter manure disposal. And it needed to be covered after the construction, so it was a good place to add the manure in the summer. I plant the hillside with, with squash, and we just get this beautiful growth of uh, squash and morning glories and some other pretty things. And it's uh, so it's both productive and, and pretty. It does not look like a manure pile. But it has gotten a little over full, which is a problem because I need it for the winter. And it was had really reached capacity. So my spring project was digging out this hill, which is quite good size, and transporting it to the lower barn, which was an enormous amount of work. But I have done this, and I have created raised beds, mounds, of this composted manure. So it's a mix. There are places digging into that hill where the manure is nine years old. Well, beautiful compost. You know, that lovely black, just oh, lovely, gorgeous stuff. And then there's some that's much fresher, that's newer. So it's a mix. And this is what I'm going to plant in. Now, I've been planting in the compost for the last, well, really 
in the time that we've had the barn. So I do grow tomatoes and a few other veggies. So I know that veggies will, will grow in this kind of a compost mix. And they should be even happier because they're growing in old compost. But that's my starting point. So are you groaning internally or are you saying, oh, that might work? Well, no, not at all. Um, first of all, you've already proven that that compost pile is a, it's a proven trial ground. You've done that. You've produced food from it. Yes. Um, and so we know that. Um, does it lack something that would make your produce more healthful? It's possible. We have a, here in, in Western Washington, actually Washington in general, has a selenium, a lack of selenium, which is not good for your horses and it's not good for us. It's a trace element that, that is necessary. And if you feed, so I use my compost for my horses here as well. And if I feed local hay, and I feed my garden that compost, I also know that the soil is already lacking selenium. That feed that I gave my horses was lacking selenium. But I do supplement selenium in my horse's diet, so hopefully that selenium is making it through into the compost. I can't say for sure unless I get a soil test, but that's my expectation. So really the only way to determine if you have a good balance for all of the elements, trace minerals, and nutrients is to do a soil test. But I also feel that if you're growing something in something in an organic matter such as you're doing and you're getting good results, well, the chances are you may be lacking a nutrient or, a, I'm sorry, a, a trace mineral or have a low level of a trace mineral here and there. But if you've got good, healthy plants, then chances are you're probably doing pretty good. Okay, good. Yeah. Um, things that you might, you know, that you look for, are discoloration of leaves, curling of leaves, low fruit production, uh, especially when you're planting compost, a very high green production. So lots and lots of of leaf and, and little fruit or, fruit or flower, um, that typically means that your nitrogen is out of whack. You've got way too much nitrogen. And that is common when we grow in compost piles. But again, like I said, you've, you've got a proven growing ground, so I wouldn't worry too much about it. The only other thing that I worry about growing in directly into compost is not being composted enough. So if the compost is too hot, then we can have some issues as well. The plants can't take up the nutrients if, um, if the compost is still really fresh. But it sounds like yours is beautiful. Some of it is really gorgeous. And some of it, you know, has, because some of it did have to come from the top layers. But there's a bit of a, a mix in every mound. So hopefully it won't be too hot. It may be a little on the too rich side in terms of nitrogen. So that could be a problem. Well, in, in that case, I w if you've got certain mounds that you think are higher in nitrogen than others, then my recommendation would be to plant your greens there. Oh, okay. Yeah, because that's what they're going to thrive on. Ah. They're not going to go to flower and fruit like your tomatoes and your squash. Right. And I want lots of greens, so that's a plus. Yeah. Okay. And you know, new gardens are always an experiment in my experience. You know, it's, 
it's like, okay, let's see how this, how this goes. And you watch it closely and you look at your plants and your plants tell you, they, they talk back and they let you know. But generally speaking, you know, when you start with what you've got there, you're going to be successful. You've got, you've got the makings of a very beautiful garden. Right. Well, it's certainly going to grow some things. Well, I don't know if it will grow everything equally well, but it will certainly grow some things. Yeah. And my experience also is that if you really year three, that you really have the, that's when your garden really comes into its own. Then, and I think there's a lot of things in, in play there. I think we get to, we understand the garden, what we get the knowledge of that, that piece of land and, and how it works, the knowledge of the weather, this, where the wind comes from. And these are things that, you know, you could live on a piece of property for 30 years. And yet until you grow a garden in that particular location, it doesn't really, it doesn't trigger that oh, I forgot that, oh, yeah, the wind comes through at four o'clock and blows the heck out of this area or whatever. Yes. So you learn these things, you adjust to them, and typically by year three, you got it down. And you have a beautiful garden that almost grows itself. Well, I, I would think also by year two or three, the that compost will be really gorgeous. Exactly. So that's the other thing that's happening there, right, is all the symbiosis between the soil, that rock dust that you have there, which is actually really beneficial, the, the compost, and all the microorganisms and your composters, your worms, the sow bugs, and even the slugs, you know, they're great composters, although they also eat our food. Um, they're going up and down and back around, and they're bringing stuff up from below, as are the roots of our plants and the mycelium and all of that stuff is starting to become symbiotic and creating an environment all of its own under that soil or in that soil and that starts to really come into its own um, in the next you know two to three years as well takes a little while for things to kind of even out um, but the earth is amazing that way and how it can really it takes what you give it and it figures it out I think we can help it a lot, but it does do a lot of the work for us. So how do we help it? We help it in a lot of different ways, really. I mean, as I mentioned, getting the soil test is not a bad idea because it really lets you know what you might need to add. Just putting all-purpose fertilizer, in, and there's plenty of great fertilizers out there that are organic and use organic uh, materials like kelp meal and, and uh, granite dust and things of this nature. Um, I make my own uh, organic fertilizer mix for my area. So learning about what your soil in your particular location is needing, and some people are really fortunate, they don't need anything. Um, but usually there's something that's either missing or leaches out pretty quickly, and depending on the soil type that you have. So there's that's one place to start. Another is cover cropping. I think cover cropping is so important. In other words, let's not let the soil lay exposed to the elements. Plant something in it. If you're not going to grow something in that particular mound, you know, cover it with buckwheat. Um, when you're ready to grow, you chop the buckwheat into the mound and off you go. Um, the buckwheat f uh, protects the soil while it's growing and feeds the soil while it's decomposing. There's many different cover crops that can be grown depending on the time of year and the location that you're growing. So cover cropping is a great way to go. 
mulching in some places and some areas is a really good idea. I have to be really careful about mulching here where I live because of slugs. And if I had a neighbor who had a couple of ducks, I would rent them a couple of times a year to come in and clean out the slugs for me. Um, uh, let's see, what else? So another thing is... So but before we go on to the what else, so some other cover crop suggestions. So buckwheat, what else? Legumes are always great cover crops because they fix nitrogen in the soil. So probably not a, a real important thing for you, but fixing nitri fixed nitrogen is different because fixed ni nitrogen is available. Not all nitrogen is available. Right. So when the little nodules on the roots of legumes, alfalfa, uh, peas, beans, soybeans, um, they, these fix nitrogen in the soil, which makes it available to plant roots. So those are always great. Clover is another legume that is often used. Vetch, vetch is really great cover crop, but it has a very nasty tap root that doesn't yes. want to go away. Yes. So I try to stay away from any yes. cover crop mix that has vetch in it. And then there's our grasses. So things like barley is very good. Um, millet is good. These things you don't let go to seed you would chop them into your soil before they go to seed so you don't have a seed issue. So cover cropping will keep your weeds down, it will retain soil health and moisture, and then again, when you chop it into your, into your garden bed, you're feeding the soil back all the nutrients that it took out, and now you've got this lovely friable soil to plant your next crop in. Excellent. So we're talking about how to improve soil quality. So I am a firm believer in incorporating my native soil into whatever additive, including compost, that I'm using. I think our native soils are part of our environment. And even clay, clay has a tremendous amount of nutrients in it. They're just not available because of the close compactness of, of clay. So adding things to your particular soil that will open up, improve. So here I live in what we call the glacial moraine. The uh, uh, Vashon Glacier came down and carved out the Puget Sound. And when it did that, it let, took all the topsoil and dumped it about five miles from here. <laughs> In this gorgeous place called the Chimicum Valley that has about 17, I kid you not, about 17 feet of topsoil. Wow. It is black and gorgeous. Wow. What it dumped here in my yard was tons of sand and round yeah. rock. Oh, great. Yeah. Which is not the best growing medium. <laughs> so I have to add a lot of organic matter. So some additives are really helpful for your particular and, soil. And our area is similar. We're glacial as well. And where I am was the bottom of Lake Albany. And so there are areas that are thick, thick clay, which is what I am used to. And then you go just a short distance down the road and there'll be a sand bank and, and it's just deep sand. So it depends upon where you are within the this immediate area, whether you are on... Uh, incredibly well-drained sand or deep, deep clay. So it's very similar. So I know clay. I mean, I, I know clay. I know how to uh, garden on clay. I know what clay does. 
it's what I understand. I would be totally lost if you plunked me down uh, and set on sand and said, grow things. Well, one of, the, one of the beauties of sand is that you can create sandy loam. And here's an interesting thing that I have noticed in my compost, in my horse compost, horse manure compost, is that the worms have brought up, and I, can, I, only, I assume it's the composters, the worms and whoever else is running around in there, but I have tons of worms in that pile, are bringing up sand and grit from underneath. So my compost, is actually a really good growing medium because that sand is breaking up that rich compost yes. and giving it some yes. aeration and um, and then it blends really nicely with my soil. So so our composters, those natural beings that live in our soils are really, really super helpful. Another reason why not to use pesticides because yes. pesticides yes. kill everything. They're they're not specific. And so we really want to be careful with that. So balancing our ecosystems as best we can with the environment is so important. So I encourage snakes, frogs, lizards, birds of all sorts. I really encourage their, their existence in my garden. The one thing I don't encourage is rabbits. <laughs> well, that's what fences are for. That's right. That's right. And we do have... A lot of rabbits, and that's fine. We live sympathetically with them, but um, but a Kate, but the babies can get through my fence. Unfortunately, uh, I lost three romaine lettuces last night. Oh. I learned when uh, I I had a garden in Montana for many years, and one of the things that I learned there was grow enough for your neighbors. <laughs> so I would grow enough for the pack rats and the and the deer, and there would be plenty left for me. So are you the one who told me about woodchucks and that it? Yes. Yeah. So so share that. Okay. So uh, another wonderful garden I had was in Virginia. I lived in a sharecropper's cabin on the James Monroe Estate, uh, which is the only privately owned presidential estate in the United States, and I was very fortunate and honored to to be there and to garden on this historical, I'm sure, historical garden plot. And at the back of my garden was a thicket, a berry thicket, and a couple of peach trees. And I planted this beautiful garden and I go out there and half of, you know, half of what I'd planted the day before had just been gone, was gone, just gone. And I'm like, okay, this is not okay. And I found out before, you know, within a matter of days that there was this hedgehog living in that thicket. Not hedgehog, woodchuck. Woodchuck living in the back of the, the back of the garden in the thicket, and so I went to the library. I went to the extension service actually, and I started to learn whatever I could about them. And what I found out was they their favorite two things that gave me all the information I needed. One, alfalfa is one of their favorite foods, and two, they'll never go farther from their den than they have to to eat. So I took that corner of the garden closest to his den and I grew a patch of alfalfa. Now alfalfa is a fantastic compost additive. So it was a win-win. Um, I could cut down the alfalfa and feed it to my compost and it's a perennial so it would just grow right back. And I always left enough for the woodchuck. So that worked out great. I lived in that home for over five years and I never had another problem. Wow. 
So that's another thing about living with, you know, with nature and having your garden, and especially in the places where I live, where I think a lot of horse, horse owners live as well, um, is out in rural areas where we do have to concern ourselves with wildlife in coming into our garden areas. So I think there's a lot of ways that we can explore that are non-harmful, that keep the ecosystem um, balanced, and keep our vegetables safe. So there's a lot of protection, shall we say, that I use. That I've learned over the years, some is healthier than others. So you really can live with your neighbor. And if that isn't a metaphor for what we need to learn as humans, I don't know what is. I love the story of the woodchuck. Coexistence. We need to get better at it. This seems like a good spot for a pause. Suzanne and I talked for several hours, so there's a lot more to come. A couple quick notes before I send you on your way. First, Suzanne has sent me a list of gardening references, books that she found really useful and that cover different parts of the country. So I've included that in the show notes. And then I'll just mention that while I was building the vegetable garden, I needed something to listen to. because It was a lot of hours of really hard physical labor, getting all that manure transported to the area that I had picked out. So I listened to podcasts. And my very favorite podcast, the one that I'm just really loving, is Amanda Scott's Accidental Gods. If you haven't yet discovered her podcast, do check it out. Go to accidentalgods.life. I think you'll really enjoy the podcast. And certainly gardening is all about connecting to the natural world. So enjoy and thank you for listening to this podcast. And stay well. Stay well.